A couple of weeks ago, Carol gave a talk on uh, the first of the Noble Truths. And these four Noble Truths, as <coughs> I'm sure you all know, is the basic, most fundamental framework of the Buddha's teachings. That is the truth of dukkha, the unreliability, <coughs> or the unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena, the cause of dukkha, the end, and the path leading to the end. So tonight I'd like to continue the discussion and explore the second noble truth, which is the cause of dukkha, that is this ultimately unsatisfying, unreliable nature of impermanent phenomena. And the Buddha just laid it out, he laid out this truth very succinctly and very clearly. He said, now this bhikkhus, and keep in mind the word bhikkhu in this context, and Bhikkhu Bodhi has explained this, does not refer only to monks uh, or bhikkhunis nuns, but really to everyone walking on the path. And that, that's uh, a more fuller understanding of how the term bhikkhu is used. So when the Buddha is addressing bhikkhus, he's really talking to us. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. So this is what I would like to uh, just explore and go into some detail this evening. It's this powerful force of craving in the mind that keeps the whole wheel of conditioned existence, the whole wheel of samsara rolling on. Again, the Buddha said, bhikkhus, I do not envision even one other fetter fettered by which beings go wandering and transmigrating for a long, long time as the fetter of craving. So I just find it interesting, of all the different defilements of mind that the Buddha could have singled out as being the fundamental cause of dukkha, he's highlighting it is this force of craving that keeps the whole show going. So what is it exactly? What is craving and how do we experience it in our lives and in our practice? So craving is the usual translation of the Pali word tanha. And tanha can refer to thirst, or sometimes it's described as the fever of unsatisfied longing. And I kind of appreciate those translations of thirst and fever. Now just for imagine, just for a moment, imagine what it's like to be really thirsty. You know, there's a compelling intensity to that experience. So we want to understand and to see and to experience 
this force of craving in the mind as a thirst. It has that kind of intensity. It's a very primal energy that really often seems to come from the very depths of our being. Now we often use the words desire and craving synonymously. But I just want to clarify this point because it can be a little confusing. In English, there's a wide range of meanings for the word desire. So sometimes desire does mean this greed, you know, craving. But we also use the word desire in other ways as well. Sometimes we use it simply to mean the motivation to do something. You know, we have a desire to become more loving, a desire to become compassionate, a desire to accomplish some aim. So this is not the desire of craving, even though we're using the same word. And the Pali word for this kind of desire is chanda or just the desire to do, the desire to accomplish. And this is ethically neutral, depending on what kind of motivation is associated with it. Tonight, however, I'm going to be using the words desire and craving interchangeably. But when you hear that, keep in mind that in other contexts, desire can mean many other things. So the Buddha spoke of three domains or three arenas of craving. Desire or craving for sense pleasures, desire for continued or renewed existence, and desire for non-existence. So the first and most obvious of these is the very familiar desire for sense pleasures. These are the pleasant sights and pleasant sounds and tastes and scents, touch sensations and thoughts and ideas that we long for, that we want. Now these are the experiences that are desirable and agreeable to us because they're pleasant. And all of this is just our usual engagement with the world. It doesn't seem generally in our lives particularly problematic. It's like we want and enjoy things that are pleasurable, so we go after them. And <coughs> we seek to avoid as best we can things that are unpleasant. So this is just the usual <coughs> the usual way of our lives. But the Buddha, <coughs> in his seeking enlightenment, he undertook a very careful analysis of this very ordinary situation. You know, desire for what's agreeable and pleasant, and desire to be away from what's unpleasant. He didn't condemn sense pleasures as being sinful. Rather, in his quest for enlightenment, he was just looking at his life and he asked some very probing questions as a way of trying to understand uh, how life unfolds and what really is the cause of suffering. So the first question he asked 
was what is the gratification in the world? And as a young prince, you know, growing up in a noble family, he enjoyed <coughs> all the available sense pleasures of his times. You know, they weren't foreign to him. And then, as it's told in the suttas, the thought came to him, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. Right? So he's asking, what is the gratification? The gratification in the world is the joy and pleasure that we experience. <coughs> if there were no pleasure and joy in the world, beings would not become enamored of it. They would not become attached to it or, or desiring it. So I think this is important to understand. It's precisely because there is gratification. And we do feel gratified by these pleasant sense experiences. Because of that gratification, we come to desire and crave the different kinds of sense pleasures. So I think, as with all the teachings, rather than simply listen and think, oh yeah, this is what the Buddha said, and you know, maybe it sounds right, or maybe you have some questions. But really, I think it's an invitation for us to inquire in exactly the same way the Bodhisattva did. We can ask ourselves, in looking at our own lives, the same question. What is the gratification that we find in our lives? What different sense experiences in the body and the mind do we become enamored of? And when we look, we see that there is a wide range, both of intensity and frequency, you know, of different sense pleasures and different levels of sense craving. On one end of the spectrum, at one extreme, there might be obsessive cravings that consume our lives. And we may know of people who are so consumed, or we may have experienced that in ourselves at different times. You know, it might be addictive desires for food, or drugs, or sex, or alcohol, or success, or power, or fame, or wealth, or possessions. It might be addictive desire for comfort, even for love. You know, people can be consumed in their desire for that. And it's interesting that much of the world's great literature revolves around these very passions. So this is, com this is like a common theme of the human condition. And in many ways, Western culture fosters and values this kind of craving. Very interesting. 
there was in, uh, once I was in New York and I saw this ad just in a store window. Don't let desire pass you by. In <laughs> uh, one magazine ad I saw, nothing stands in the way of my pleasure. You know, and then how much internet spam, you know, email spam, will have the heading, increase your desire, as if somehow that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, so that's the message. The message, yes, increase your desire, increase your pleasure, and that will lead to your happiness and well-being. So that's generally the message that we're getting in our culture. Or we may have some kinds of desires that are not necessarily on the obsessive level, but still can be the driving force behind so many of our actions. So it's interesting just to investigate and to explore what it is that we actually desire. What is it that we crave in our lives? What moves us to action? And we can also watch craving, and here on retreat it's a particularly a good time to do it. It might be just a passing thought of wanting in the mind. But it's very illuminating to see how even a small little desire or craving can have very deep roots. In my India days of practice, I'd been there for some years doing quite a lot of practice and so there was a period of time when my mind was just really still and concentrated and clear. You know, and I was having the kinds of sitting where you think you're going to get enlightened any minute. You know, it's just waiting to happen. And we were staying at what was called the Burmese Vihar in Bodh Gaya, very simple, basic conditions, and the food was really very basic. And at tea time, they served a cup of tea and two tiny bananas. I mean, basically they were about that big, really small bananas. So here I am sitting, about to get enlightened. (laughs) The tea bell rings. Banana or enlightenment? (laughs) I let the thought go. And then about, you know, two minutes later, banana or enlightenment? (laughs) And came again and again, and very often I would get up and go for the banana. (laughs) And you just wonder what is going on in the mind, you know, but... The cra- it's, a, it's as if the craving lifted me out of my seat. <laughs> and of course the pleasure was... One could hardly even call it momentary. <laughs> <laughs> but the force of it was very strong. Now all of these different patterns of desire and craving, of wanting, they're so familiar to us you know, they just seem the ordinary fabric of our lives. We hardly pay attention to it. So the retreat environment is particularly conducive 
to seeing and understanding both the force of the craving desire, of how it's, how it's operating in the mind, and to see very clearly the gratification that comes from sense pleasures. So we really understand what the gratification is. So during the day and evening, it would be interesting for you to notice just the little things that the mind becomes enamored of. You know, what is it that gratifies us? You know, maybe it's you know, the mealtime, it's the food. Maybe it's a hot shower. There's a lot of, it's a very pleasant experience. You've been kind of sitting and walking all day and maybe the body is tired or aching. You get into that, it's a kind of sense pleasure and there's a gratification from that. Have you noticed particularly just that moment after a long day of practice when you first lie down in bed and just that delicious moment of, So that's another kind of sense pleasure and be aware of that, you know, and see and understand the gratification of those moments. We can also (coughs) explore the gratification, this enjoyment, you know, of sense pleasures when we're lost, you know, or, or following just different pleasant fantasies in the mind. It's not only the external senses, it's also the pleasant experiences in the mind. Maybe, you know, you have periods where there are enticing sexual fantasies, and the mind just, oh, this is fun. (laughs) (laughs) Or food fantasies, or relationship fantasies. You know, we all have our our own repertoire. At some point of investigation, of just looking at this, you know, again and again, we might resonate with the Buddha's, with the Bodhisattva's words when he said, whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. Or are we still holding out? Are we still looking? Maybe there's some new sight or sound or smell. Maybe there's some gratification I haven't yet experienced. Well, just take a look, uh, you know, in your own experience. But the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, did not stop with this exploration of gratification. He then asked the next probing question. He said, because I set out seeking the dangers in the world, now, danger here is the translation of the Pali word adinava, and it can also be translated as the drawbacks or the disadvantages, what we might colloquially say the downside of things. And so the Buddha continued, and whatever downside there is in the world, that I have found, namely that the world is impermanent, bound up with dukkha subject to change. So what the Buddha here is calling the drawbacks or the dangers of the world, in contradistinction to the gratification in the world, 
the drawbacks or the dangers or the downside is precisely the first noble truth. It's the understanding of dukkha, the impermanent, unreliable nature of all experience. But how many of us, when times are relatively good, you know, when things are more or less pleasant, (coughs) when we are experiencing the gratification in the world, how many of us have the foresight or the prescience in those times to really question, to look, well, even in the midst of this gratification, what is the downside of this? What is the drawback? What is the danger in this very gratification? Now, there are several ways of understanding what the downside of sensual pleasures are. First, in the end, they don't deliver on their promise of happiness. Now, we believe that the experience of sense pleasures and continuing to seek them and enjoy them, will bring us happiness because of the pleasant feelings that come with them. And what I think seduces us is that, in fact, they do bring a kind of happiness. When we experience pleasant things, there is that gratification. It brings us happiness. The problem is that these pleasant feelings are always changing. They're always impermanent and sometimes even momentarily so, like the banana. The pleasant feelings themselves that we have craved and desire and acted to experience, they don't last. They're changing, they're continually disappearing. And so we go after another one and another one. And before we know it, our life is at an end and we've spent our life simply seeking one pleasant feeling after another. And this is, I think, the common experience for very many people because that's their only understanding of what brings happiness. But it's like trying to quench thirst by drinking salt water. You know, it only makes us thirstier. So we keep going after the sense pleasures and the changing after another and another and another. And meanwhile, all the time, the force of craving, the force of desire is getting stronger because we are continually practicing it. Now, all of us have already enjoyed countless moments of sense enjoyment, sense pleasures. You know, our lives have been full of so many different pleasant experiences. And yet, we never come to a sense of completion. There's always the wanting or the anticipating the next one. When Indraji, my first teacher, one of the things he would say very often, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of nice sensations in the body, 
of pleasant thoughts. We never come to the end of them, of wanting them, if we think that they are going to be the source of our happiness, because they are continually disappearing and changing. It's very interesting to see and observe how and when seemingly trivial desires strengthen into uh, quite strong habits. We go from I want to I need to I must have. You know, and by the time we're at must have, this has become quite a strong force in our lives. So just what there are countless examples of this, but one that <laughs> was shocking in how blatant it was happened. I was on a self-retreat and generally both in my life and on retreat, uh, I have a whole little ritual for making coffee in the morning. So every morning, you know, I do this, I, I grind the beans and I you know, pour the water through and I make this cup of coffee and it's a nice little sense pleasure every morning. Kickstart the day. One morning I go downstairs, I put the beans in the coffee grinder and it doesn't grind. Nothing happens. It's broken. The first word that came to my mind was disaster. <laughs> it was rather shocking <laughs> to realize that that was my immediate response. <laughs> because really, given what's happening in the world, <laughs> it ranks rather low <laughs> on the level of disaster. But it did reflect kind of an, an unacknowledged attachment, you know, the strength of the attachment. I want, I need, I must have, and if I don't have, disaster. <laughs> so this is just about an ordinary little thing of our lives, you know. How many, how many experiences do we have in the day like that, you know, which are revealing of just how powerful a force craving is. And it doesn't have to be these super big things. It can be just these very little moments in the day. So although as lay people, most of us, we are living in the world of sense pleasures and engaged with them in our lives. So it's not that the idea is to remove ourselves from them. It's not even possible. You know, this is kind of the fabric of our lives. There's a lot that's pleasant and some that's unpleasant. But I think for all of us, some very deep part of us knows that it's not the way to peace. Because it's why we're all here. If you really thought that sense pleasures were the way to peace or to some kind of final happiness, you'd be on a beach someplace. So something, you know, very deep in us has come to this understanding. 
And I think it's good to recognize that because it's pretty rare in the world you know, for people to have this insight, this understanding. Dharma practice opens us to possibilities of much greater happiness than the happiness of sense pleasures. And so this is again from the Buddha. He said, formerly when I lived the household life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure. On a later occasion, having understood as they really are, the gratification, the defects, the disadvantages, and the release in the case of sensual pleasures, I abandoned craving for them. I removed the fever of sensual pleasures, and I dwell without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. There is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. You know, and I think we're all on this path of discovering kinds of happiness, levels of peace, that are far superior to the kinds of happiness that come through sensual pleasures. So we're all on this path of discovery, and the more you know, we explore the other possibilities of happiness, the lure of the sense pleasures, even as we engage just in the the ordinary times of our lives, we are not so seduced by them, or seduced by them quite so often. So the first drawback, I would say downside of sensual pleasures, the gratification, is that they don't really accomplish our aim. They don't bring the happiness that we're seeking. The second danger, often uh, mixed in with sensual craving, sensual desire, when it becomes a very strong and powerful force, a dominating force in our minds, <coughs> it can lead to many, many unwholesome actions, bringing unwholesome karmic results and just bringing about suffering. You know, just the newspapers and TV are, are filled like with stories of crimes of passion, people doing all kinds of things, you know, and often very violent things out of desire, out of craving for some kind of pleasure. Saito Upandita <coughs> was once giving a talk about all this, and he went on and on in Burmese, I don't know, he must have spoken for about five minutes or ten minutes. And the translator was quite remarkable, kind of holding it all. And after this five minute or ten minutes of talk in Burmese, the translator translated everything Sayadaw said in four words. <laughs> Lust cracks the brain. <laughs> oh, that was a masterful translation. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
really look at the state of your brain <laughs> slash mind when it's filled with lust. You know, when it's really, when the lust is really strong and we're acting on it in different ways. Lust does crack the brain. We're not seeing clearly. We so often do things that are not skillful, you know, that cause harm to ourselves and others. So this is another downside or danger when craving for sense pleasure becomes very intense. So the Buddha talked about some of the consequences of craving in the mind, strong craving for sense pleasures. He said, because of craving, there is pursuit. That is, we, we take action. There is pursuit and acquisition of what we want. Because of acquisition, there is possessiveness and avarice, quarrels, strife, and dissension. Now, there are so many examples of this, but one of the most striking ones to me, and every once in a while there's, you know, there's a big news article about this. But I remember one time in particular, one of the very wealthy, super wealthy matriarchs in New York had died. <coughs> she was over a hundred, and so her children were you know, in their eighties all fighting over the inheritance, you know, just that, and it just seemed, because there was a massive amount. You know, what is that about? You know, that kind of craving for acquisition and possessiveness and avarice and leading to quarrels and dissension, and you just see it play itself out. And of course that was an extreme example, but it kind of highlighted it. We can also see it not only on the personal level, but on the societal level, you know, on the national level, how this force of craving leads, can lead to so much suffering. We can see it in the economic underpinnings, you know, of the racism and oppression that occurs in society. You know, one of the things that feeds that it's just this craving, this greed in the mind. We saw it play out, you know, in recent years, in the huge financial meltdown and the recession that followed. It was just so interesting, you know, to take a step back and take the bigger picture of what was going on in that. You know, people and institutions fueled by desire, fueled by craving, assuming unmanageable debt until the whole financial oedipus collapsed. You know, and it caused suffering to millions and millions of people. Uh, people losing their jobs, losing their houses, just, where did that come from? It came from that kind of craving and greed. So this is not some trivial matter. It affects us all personally, it affects society. We can also experience the downside of craving just in the attitudes we bring to our meditation practice. Have you noticed times of expectation 
in your meditation. Expectation is a kind of wanting. Wanting some new, undoubtedly pleasurable experience. You're probably not sitting there wanting pain and discomfort. You know, we want more pleasurable experience or a pleasant one that's there to continue. The danger here is that expectation inevitably brings agitation to the mind. And it's very helpful to see that because it can help decondition that habit of expectation when we see and experience the agitation that it brings. What makes this particular danger, this kind of craving of expectation so seductive is that we often confuse it with dharma aspiration. It comes, expectation comes disguised as noble aspiration. But these are two very different things, different mind states. Aspiration for awakening, for clarity, for peace, for whatever, for greater love. These aspirations, they can inspire us and they can bring about a lot of energy. Expectation of wanting it to be a certain way now simply leads to the agitation of hope and fear. Hope that we'll get what we want fear that it will never happen. And so we go back and forth, and the mind is very unsettled. So the next time you feel frustrated or agitated in your practice, let that be a signal to investigate, is there some expectation here? Is there some wanting here? Is there some craving? Because if we see clearly the mechanism of it, then there's the possibility of the release from it. We actually can let go of the wanting if we see that the wanting very directly is the cause of suffering. In this way, we take struggle and the sense of struggle as a feedback rather than as a problem. You know, when we're struggling, with that's, that's telling us that there's something going on that we're not accepting and that we want something else to be happening. So we use, we use the very difficulty as a wake-up call. When we have the interest and even sometimes the courage that it takes to investigate the drawbacks of the world, the downside of sensual pleasures, which we are so accustomed to seeking for our happiness. When we really have the interest to look deeper and to enlarge the scope of our vision, it can lead us to a wiser relationship to the world. And so we see there is an upside to the downside of things. And the Buddha pointed to this very directly. He said, if there were no drawbacks, if there were no dangers in the world, 
beings would not become disenchanted with the world. But because there are drawbacks in the world, beings become disenchanted with it. So now it's very interesting to watch or to illuminate what our inner reactions are when we hear words like disenchantment, drawbacks, dangers, downside. When we hear those words, do they sound gloomy? Do they sound fearful? You know, kind of heavy. Or, when we understand their meaning, does it bring about a certain sense of openness and relief that, that we're actually seeing things in a clearer way? I find it very interesting to unpack the meaning of the word disenchantment. It really means to wake up from the dreamlike state of enchantment. Now that's like the end of so many fairy tales. You know, the wicked witch puts an enchantment on somebody, and then you know some hero or heroine comes along and the magic kiss, and they wake up from being enchanted. They're disenchanted. And we can have this experience many times of seeing the freedom of that. So pay attention just to the next time you're lost in some intense mind drama. Have you had any recently? (laughs) You know, whatever, we all have our own, where we're just lost in and carried away and there's this whole big drama that's unfolding in the mind. And then at a certain point, we awaken to the fact that that whole big drama were just thoughts going through the mind. Just empty, insubstantial thoughts. We've wakened up, we've awakened from the dream. It's like coming out of a movie. You know, we go to the movies and maybe we're totally engrossed in the story. You know, and in fact, that's why we go to the movies, to get engrossed. But you know that feeling when you come out and all of a sudden, it's like our minds, there's a bigger reality. It's like we're outside of the confines of the story. So this happens so many times in the course of a day. We wake up from the movies of our minds. Okay, so I've talked a lot about this first kind of craving, desire for sense pleasures the craving for it, the gratification that comes from it, and also the downside, the drawbacks of them. So the second kind of craving the Buddha talked about, it goes even deeper. And this is the craving for what's called continued existence or renewed existence. It's the basic urge or desire to be. You know, and it's talked about in terms of desire for continued existence, particularly in pleasant realms. So you may or may not believe, <coughs> you know, in the Buddhist teachings on rebirth and different planes of existence. So these teachings are there. I mean, <coughs> they're in the discourses, but most of us don't have a direct personal experience of them, and. There's no need, you know, there's no requirement to believe in it. 
But we can understand this second kind of craving, even within this very life, this craving for becoming. We experience it in the obsessively planning mind. You know, imagining ourselves again and again in some future situation and then engaging in all the thoughts and actions that get us there. Notice how often we get lost in mind creations of a future self. I'll do this, I'll go there, I'll, we just anticipate, we create whole worlds, whole mind worlds of the future. So this is a craving for becoming, for renewing the sense of self in the future. The Buddha gave some very specific and challenging teachings in this regard, and this is just a little teaching that I find so direct and so powerful a suggestion. Difficult to practice, but worth exploring even for brief moments. So he said, not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Instead, with insight, see each arising state. Not craving after past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up with desire and craving. So what would it be like to live like that? And here's the Buddha saying, this is actually the way to live in freedom, the way to live in peace. He's, he's laying it out very clearly and directly. Not craving after past experience, not reviving the past, not setting one's heart on future ones. Very interesting to take some periods of time where we really take these words in and practice them, even for short moments, you know, even if it's for a few minutes, to see what it's like when the mind is not reviving the past and not craving after future experiences. But just with insight, see each arising state. This is the whole path of our practice. The Buddha just, you know, he lays it out so simply, but as we know, very difficult to do the habit patterns of craving for past, for future. So this is all the craving for becoming. We can also understand this craving for becoming on more momentary levels, and this, this also is very interesting to see just in our relationship to the unfolding mind-body process. Notice how often we are leaning into the next moment's experience, as if somehow the next experience, the next breath, the next step, the next sensation will resolve everything. I mean, I, I can see this happening in my mind. I'm with the breath to experience the next one as if the next one will resolve it in some way that the present one cannot. 
it's just this tendency of leaning into. I call it the in order to mind. You know, we, we might be experiencing unpleasant sensations in order for them to disappear, to go away. We might be feeling some emotion in order for them to open more deeply or for us to experience them more fully. Instead of being with them simply as they are presenting themselves, we're leaning into it. Or even the the most simple example, you know, you're doing the slow walking and just to watch this slight tendency in the mind, we're lifting in order to move forward, in order to place. You know, it's just that slight leaning forward. This leaning forward or anticipation is a momentary example of craving for becoming. We're craving for the next moment's experience and we forget that liberation or freedom is not about becoming anything. It's not about getting anything. It's not in the next moment. It's not about holding on or craving or clinging. It's about letting go. So this is what we're practicing, although we forget it all the time. You know, so often in our practice, we're practicing in the hope of some better experience. This is the craving for becoming. Forgetting that the liberating aspect of our practice is not about becoming, it's about letting go of clinging to what's arising right now. It's a very different move. It's not this, it's this. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, he just expressed it very succinctly. He said, try to be less, not more. Try to be less, not more. Not getting, but letting go. So the first kind of craving is for sense pleasures. The second kind of craving is becoming. The third kind of craving is the desire for non-existence. And this is the mind state of life is so bad if only I weren't here. Or this situation is so difficult if only it weren't here. You know, and, and so in this respect we can see uh, anger or dosa you know, as also included in craving craving to not be. Again, I had to, I can't remember if I told you this story yet or not, but on the retreat with Saito Pandita in 84, the first one, and you know, it was very challenging and very difficult, and I was going through some really difficult times. At a certain point, I mean, it was just so, so difficult. I would hear, this was in 1984, so the geopolitics of the world was a little different. But I would hear planes coming over and I would have this fantasy that the Russians are coming and they're going to drop the bombs and so I can stop meditating. (laughs) (laughs) 
never mind what happens to everybody else. <laughs> I can get out of here. <laughs> so, <laughs> this was a very striking example of <laughs> craving for non-existence <laughs> in that particular situation. Now, this craving for non-existence is very different than the realization of selflessness because it, no less than craving for sense desires or becoming, is rooted in a sense of self. A self to gratify. A self to clone in the future. A self to get rid of. These are the three forms of craving, all rooted in that basic hallucination. So there's a writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei, who was, I can't remember whether he was English or Irish, but he lived in Hong Kong. And he had some, he clearly had some profound realizations because he wrote many books uh, and he just understood so much about emptiness and selflessness. But he wrote just these very short little uh, aphorisms so he said, destroy the ego, hound it, beat it, snub it, tell it where to get off. Great fun, no doubt, but where is it? Must you not find it first? Isn't there a word about catching your goose before you cook it? The great difficulty here is that there isn't one. You know, and we're doing so much around this ego to gratify or to have it be in the future or to get rid of. And as he, he said someplace, all of this action rooted in a sense of self, he said, it's like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. And just the image of that. <laughs> and to realize that that's what we're doing. We're just barking up this tree that isn't there. We're, we're engaged in all kinds of actions rooted in this hallucination of perception of self. So the great discovery in our practice is that on one level, you know, these very big questions of life and death and existence and non-existence and self and other, you know, these very big questions, they really, on one level, are the defining themes of our lives. Now just, what is life and death about? And what is the relationship of self and other? And, but on another level, we begin to see that it's all simply a dance of arising insubstantial appearances and they can be framed in terms of the five aggregates or framed in terms of the six senses, but it's just experiences insubstantial in themselves, arising and passing. The Buddha called this whole show, he called it the magic show of consciousness. And so that's, that's the level that we are exploring and engaging here on retreat, you know, where we can settle beneath the apparent solidity of ourselves, of this mind and body. 
and we see it all as Manindra used to say very often, as empty phenomena rolling on. And in that there's tremendous freedom and there's tremendous compassion and love. So in the early morning of the Buddha's enlightenment, I think I mentioned this last week, when his understanding of the Four Noble Truths was complete, in the moment of his awakening, it said that the words that first came to his mind were realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So this was his declaration, his song of enlightenment. And it points very directly to what the essence of that awakening was. Achieved is the end of craving. So this is the trajectory that we're on. You know, and as we just walk on the path and practice, we begin to understand the gratification, the drawbacks, and the freedom from this very powerful force in the mind. Just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.